Hi, welcome to the show. How about you introduce yourself? Hey, uh, I'm Ian Snyder. I'm a game developer. I'm currently working on the game Botolo. Yeah, and what's what's that game about? Uh, Botolo is a local multiplayer um, competitive game. It plays sort of like a hybrid of Keep Away or King of the Hill. Both players are uh, chasing after a ball and trying to keep it from one another. Um, and at the same time, it's sort of uh, got some fighting gaming mechanics in it. Okay. And I actually found you because you were showcased in the Indiecade esports. Oh, yeah. Thing. Okay. Um, can you talk more about that and, and maybe why you were potentially, why that game was potentially selected as an esport? Yeah, uh, so every year um, a selection of games is shown at Indiecade for the uh, eSports Showcase. And uh, this current year, Botolo happened to want to be one of those selections. Um, I think it fits in uh, in the Indiecade eSports Showcase because it's, um, it's focused again on um, competition between two players. It's really a game about... Um, I guess, for lack of a better word, winning. It tends to bring out the uh, the competitive aspects of people. Um, and it is uh, somewhat sport-like, at least. It has, you know, a ball and sort of physics-y elements to it. What, what do you think about esports in general? Um, could you be more specific? Yeah, well, do you feel... So the future of esports, do you feel mm -hmm. that it's going to be something where indies can play a huge role? Or, or do you feel that the esports the e that ultimately win, let's just say that potentially in the future there's going to be an esport that uh, displaces football sure. in the U.S. Um, I guess, do you, where, where do you feel that that innovation or, or, that, or what do you think is going to be the gameplay around that type of thing? Yeah, I guess it's kind of in an interesting place right now um, in terms of uh, we're seeing sports being actively created, you know? Yeah, uh, yeah. I feel like we haven't seen that in in a long time, really. I'm trying to think what the, the youngest sport that is currently played at a, at a at least national level is. I feel like it, it might be like basketball, which is yeah, like thinking. over 100 years old. Yeah, and I think... I think when, and and I'm you know I'm doing a series on on esports uh, and I'm interviewing esports developers, but mm -hmm. I think what's interesting, at least to consider, is that it's uh, you know that the esports are not necessarily going to even parallel or mirror what you know the the traditional sports as we consider them right now. Sure. So the concept of oh we're going to make an esport and it's going to be where people are just like you know football players or something else, I think. I think that worked for earlier games because people didn't understand potentially where the design and technology could go. And right. so what they did is they just used the templates of, you know, like the previous paradigms, mm -hmm. which is like, well, you know, we see movies that are violent, you know, like, like people sure. can relate to violence because I think maybe before computing was ubiquitous, mm. like what, what is the thing that generates the most emotion? It wasn't taking photos because that was so expensive. Sure. It wasn't communicating because even, you know, that was expensive sometimes. And so 
the cheapest thrill was violence. <laughs> so, <laughs> so that I mean, that's where I'm coming from. I don't know what are your thoughts. I mean, you're the you're the one that was showcased in indicators. <laughs> well, no, I'm just because that's what I'm thinking. Because now I'm saying, yeah. I'm like, wow, look at the yeah. games now. They're more creative, and I'm like, you know, it's funny. I was like back back a while back. I was like, it would have been nice. Like they should have creative games. And I noticed that when I would talk to other when I would talk to these game developers, they wouldn't even fathom making games where people would create stuff because because it seems like like for a lot of people they they reference their past or sure. or like what's what's common and you know maybe it was because in the seventies and sixties or, or even in the early eighties boxing and, and and fighting was was a big draw versus now that there are more options for activities those may not be as popular and yeah yeah but, but yeah. Go ahead. Maybe. I mean, it's it's kind of like, I feel like uh, violence is still sort of the main mode of esports that exists, at least yeah. uh, in in terms of what's popular, right? Uh, you think of like League of Legends or Street Fighter, and uh, it's oh, all yeah. kind of this like hyper stylized sort of violence. Um, yeah. Even something like like Hearthstone is an abstracted stylized violence. Um, even though it's just like a, a card game, essentially, uh, it's <laughs> it's a video yeah. game pretending to be a card game, pretending to be a fight. Um, yeah, I'm. I think uh, there's obviously a draw in sort of the simulated violence for a lot of people. Um, I'm not so much one of those people. Uh, the fiction of competitive games is has never appealed to me for those reasons. Like, um, watching two people beat each other up in, in Street Fighters, you know, like, I, I wouldn't go to that and be like, oh, man, I, I really want to watch people beat each other up right now, which is hence why, you know, Botolo is sort of abstract and uh, non-representational. Uh, not to say that that's bad, necessarily. You know, plenty of people enjoy boxing, and that's fine. Um, and, and maybe it's because of the visceral effect because you know the, the yeah. whole boxing sequence you know you get a punch you can you get that immediate and maybe maybe that does something to people who are watching it they can get that right. immediate feel and yeah. maybe they're at least at this point no one has found the the equivalent mechanic of something that can go in a positive direction <laughs> except you know right. for photos to an extent you look at browsing huh? and photos on social networks sure. um in a way, they found something where, first of all, it, the, the price of that became cheap. See, throwing a punch, mm -hmm. um, it's relatively cheap. You don't have to, and it, it was immediate. <laughs> yeah. Think about yes. it even 20 years ago sure. with photos. It took, you know, okay, you had a Polaroid, fine, but it was expensive. So every sure. punch had like a, like, or I mean, every photo had a real right. cost. Yeah, and, and, plus, I guess you could, yeah. and you couldn't necessarily share it in a, in a in a way where like people could watch it and and like because like look let's just say you have a you have a boxing ring and you could only have uh, cameras okay like just right. photo cameras what would you uh -huh. take photos of except for the audience right and so I don't know so maybe <laughs> so that's I think I think then maybe so so like you were saying it's like the sports of the future maybe completely different. Then, I mean, what, what do you, is, is that what you're saying or, or do you feel that it is going to be competitive because I feel like uh, violence or simulated violence um, or contests of strength of some sort right we could say that football yeah. is still a kind of violence even though it's like eh, maybe yeah. 
Um, or a physics simulation, like like yeah. you know, it's either. Or. Yes, okay. yeah, yeah. Have had such a such a place in human culture historically that I, at the very least, don't see them being phased out for a long, long time. But um, I do feel that uh, as we expand and as we're sort of seeing, as we see the rise of esports, right? Uh, an esport is a sort of like very artificially constructed sport. Uh, a simulation of a sport almost, although yeah. certainly point, not a sport this, simulation. Okay, yeah. yeah. Um, we can start to see, uh, we can start to view these sports as having authorship. And if they have an author, that author can exert their sort of creative will upon the shape of the sport. And then it starts to make sense to talk about them more in terms of like, what are you doing and what does it mean to do this action? And why are we asked to do this action by this creator? And I think that will lead us to not maybe in a, uh, not maybe to where they're mainstream, but I can see that leading to, uh, esports or, uh, competitive games that are not so rooted in this sort of, uh, violent simulation. Yeah. So it would look more like maybe something like American Idol or Shark Tank? Uh, sure, potentially. Which I don't um, know if you would consider those. So th does it become a sport <laughs> or a media experience? In a way, it's a sport because there are constrained resources, right? The resources right. of like, um, with Shark Tank, it's, it's a game like Dragon's, or I mean, it's, it's a show like Dragon's Den where people can pitch ideas right. and, um, you know, they have to get funding from the investors, which are, you know, listening, um, yeah. in the show. And so in that sense, there is a, there is some, resource constraint or, or com competition because you're trying to at sure. least be one of the ones to get funded but it isn't necessarily zero sum yeah and uh the rules are way more flexible in the sense mm -hmm. that um because it's not necessarily based on a physics simulation right which which a lot right. of these traditional sports are and so sure. um so when you say authorship so maybe what's going to happen is that the players are going to be authors like you know what i'm saying like like uh yeah potentially versus um, yeah go ahead uh, actually uh go on and finish that thought oh yeah well so so like before you think about those sports like soccer and football and basketball mm -hmm. well even even in the previous paradigm without computing creation in a way that that could have um i guess i guess creation that can have um that isn't just ephemeral you know, like, like sure. physics movements mm -hmm. or whatever, right. was not necessarily easy to do. And secondly, it, w it may not have even been fun or compelling to watch. Right. But now with esports and you have this, you have this visual, you can visual, you can almost maybe, maybe make the whole creation process fun to watch. And maybe uh -huh. that'll make a difference. And maybe there, there was already something like that before. Cause I know like on PBS and some of these other things, they would show people painting stuff in it. Sure. And that had some popularity, but I wouldn't say it was like something that people would like they would look at the replay wheel, you know, yeah. like, like, or the yeah. highlight wheel, my, my mistake. Um, sure. <laughs> uh -huh. so I think, I think maybe that's what designers or, you know, future indie developer designers for esports have to consider is just making the activity, whether it's, if it's going to be a non-physics based activity, sure. um, because physics isn't the only emo emergent system that we can, we can now tap into. You know, mm -hmm. there's, there's photos, there's, there's other emergent systems. And I think then esports have to, has to find a way where, first of all, there's skill in it. And sure. secondly, it's worth watching. Yeah. And, so, I, yeah, go ahead. Uh, I think the major difference between, um, 
sports and something like, say, Shark Tank or American Idol yeah. is that, um, let's say, uh, tennis, for example. Tennis is very concrete. Um, the ball bounces in certain ways, and if it goes outside these lines, precluding a certain order of events, then this effect happens. And um, anyone can judge tennis more or less the same. Some people might be better at it, but you're just there to enforce a rule set that's essentially set in stone. You're not making, or you're not supposed to be making value judgments. Uh, whereas something with, or something like American Idol, where you have a panel of judges who are all evaluating criteria for their own, like, on their own mysterious, like, you don't know exactly what's going on in their heads, and, and the game is sort of trying to, like, understand the judges as a system and game the system. If I'm a, if I'm a player in this game, right, if I'm the contestant, I have to give a performance that the judges like. And to do that, I have to know the judges to some degree. Um, but it's not like knowing the rules of tennis um, in that, in some sense, I ultimately cannot know these rules because the rules are, are human beings. Yeah. And, and so physic, for tennis, physics is the final arbitrator you know, our sure. arbitrator and versus, um, with, yeah. And, and that's what I'm saying is maybe then some of these esports will kind of have those things where, mm -hmm. this, where the rule systems are unknown or more flexible. Like there's, there's some, you know, you know, you're dealing with a human, but as you were mentioning, you don't know what, what exactly is going to make, you know, their, sure. Their, sure. But I don't know. But so then does that mean that even sports itself is just, we're just trying to apply this metaphor in, in a in a in an area where actually we can't consider like 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 really right. the sports equivalent is going to be the Instagram or whatever sure. you know the the game equivalent of that is where it's like these these activities of what Instagram's allowing is it's far more popular potentially than than most sports in general mm -hmm. and it's far more participatory. Um, you know, whereas, whereas people before they would just watch browse, sure. um, you know, the sports in here, they can participate, but, but maybe, I don't know. So maybe, so maybe the, some of the questions are, is will sports in general potentially go away? Let sports as we know them go away. Right. And they get replaced by these new activity systems that are far more engaging for people instead of watching sports, which back in the day compared to doing anything else might be like, it was, it was more engaging for the time and money you had to spend. You could watch that. Mm -hmm. Or will it be something where it, there will be new types of sports because people still care to be competitive. Sure. Or, or, or maybe there's just won't be the, these sports will actually, that's, that was just a subset <laughs> of what we're supposed to be experiences. And so now in this day and age, because there's an opportunity for so many more different experiences, the sports will become these like super niche type things. Kind of like how in games, you know, single player games at one point were, you know, that was what video games were known for, like mm -hmm. in the arcade. Sure. And then now slowly we're seeing as these other technologies and, and, and the cost of multiplayer and all this other stuff is going down, now that's what really people wanted. And single player, yes, it's there, but... But I see like a lot more players are engaging in what are considered multiplayer games. Right. Um, so, yeah. So what are your thoughts then? D does that mean that sports itself just goes away or <laughs> that as indie developers, we can, we have to use 
like competition is going to be one of those cornerstones of an esport, or, or um, we just have to reconsider all the rules. And... Yeah, I think a lot of people would be a lot more prescriptivist than I would with the definition of sports. Um, I'm I'm really totally okay with even gross misapplication of the term sports to think about things that are not sports. Just personally, because I find it uh, fruitful to kind of make these metaphors as a creative person and try to like draw lines where maybe no lines exist because maybe, maybe the lines do exist and we just need to find them. Um, I, so at least personally, I can see a kind of, uh, sports or sportsmanship happening without competition, um, or with a kind of competition that doesn't look like, uh, competition as we think of it today. Are you, uh, familiar with the game Become a Great Artist in Just 10 Seconds? No, I'm not. I'll, I'll look it up. Uh, it's this, uh, it's one of my favorite games, actually. It's by, uh, Michael Bro and Andy McClure. Um, and in it, it gives you sort of this, uh, joke premise in that it gives you a picture and you are supposed to imitate what that picture looks like. Uh, next to by manipulating a pixel grid. And the way you manipulate this grid is by essentially just mashing your keyboard, and every single key on the keyboard does some weird thing to this grid of pixels, almost like uh, each of them are a different cellular autonomous. So, and, and they're all so like, chaotic and bizarre that it's basically impossible to replicate any image you see at all. Uh, it's, in fact very difficult to even make something that looks like uh, anything that isn't just like mess or noise. Um, and so that's, that's, I feel that that premise is sort of a joke, but the meat of the game is uh, the free sketch mode where you can just, uh, you don't have to imitate something. You can just mash on the keyboard and make whatever you want. Um, and what we found playing the game for actually a long time after it was released, I think even a year people were still like working with it, uh, was that this, this bizarre system of just mashing keyboard buttons, uh, led to some very like interesting and unusual, uh, visual pieces with, within the game's possibility space in a way that the, the creators themselves didn't even anticipate. Um, and I, I spent a lot of time playing the game personally and I got, uh, pretty good at making images. Um, probably, uh, one of the best at making images would be in Become a Great Artist. Uh, Liz Ryerson, her images were really, really, really good and would often, if you knew anything about the game, if you knew how to play, like, make you just looking at the image, stop and be like, wait, how, how is that even possible to do with this thing? Um, and for me, that uh, action of sort of diving into this bizarre and intricate and complex possibility space felt a lot like uh, diving into a competitive game and um, learning particular combos for given situations. It was it was a very similar thing. You would learn like which keys sort of paired well together. Um, it was almost like like navigating through a forest that changed every time and having like a set of magical instructions that always led you to a clearing that you liked. Um, but it, it took a lot of like skill to create something that looked good in this game. Um, and in 
doing so, we arrived at this kind of play that was uh, sort of both competitive and collaborative, right? Yeah. Like if I see a piece made in this game by Liz Ryerson and I, I'm looking at it and I'm like examining the different intricacies and I'm trying to piece together how she created this exact image and what buttons went into making this. And then I go off on my own and I kind of play around a bit and I try to get these things and I maybe learn something new about the game. And maybe I discover my own technique that uh, pushes forward on what she discovered. Um, and so in the sense, like, I can, I can approach it sort of as competitive, right? Where I'm trying to, like, make the best images and become a great artist. But at the same time, it's also collaborative in the sense that, like, any images I make... Uh, for other people to appreciate them, for me to be recognized as the best image maker, I have to publish them, right? They have to be public, and other people can see those and then learn from them and figure out my techniques and sort of uh, work on their own techniques and combine my ideas with theirs and those of other people. It's it's a really interesting game. It Again, one of my favorites, I think. And And so maybe what it is is that the actual experience of the sport or you know the experience or, or or the initial part for each participant is collaborative but then the competitive aspect comes at the end when you're vying for attention or some human-based resource coming from other people yeah so, possibly so i mean and yeah i don't i don't so so there is that that competitive element it's just it's just at the end maybe or right i mean i don't yeah know that it necessarily even needs to be competitive per yeah. se to have like um okay so maybe it's maybe to go back to the metaphor of sports versus esports um it would be productive to think about uh something like uh football as compared to something like ballet um yeah. where i'm in football you know performing to the best of my physical ability uh, as I am in ballet, uh, but with ballet, I'm walking along these choreographed lines and I'm doing it for uh, beauty's sake itself. And even though the practice of uh, exercising and preparing for a ballet dance might bear some, some similarities to preparing for football, <laughs> In that they're, they're both physical preparation techniques. Okay. Um, they're, they're very different things culturally, right? Yeah. And, and, and I guess that's really what's going to be happening in, in the digital experience media game, gaming type space where you're going to have all these different types of experiences. And so it's really then not necessarily about esports. It's about, I mean, esports as, as used as a metaphor for, competitive types of experiences that will be one sure. of the subsets of these massive types of new types of digital experiences. And, and, and like you're saying with ballet, it's something where maybe it's not as popular potentially mm -hmm. as, as football, but there are other types of viewership type experiences that may be even more popular. Than sure. football and and yeah. like watching certain types of movies or something else like that and and so what maybe that is what as as game designers or indie game designers you have to consider is that there will be new types of experiences where the who are 
before viewers. So really, maybe we have to look at it in terms of what's going to happen to the roles mm-hmm. of people moving forward in some of these new experiences. Where, whereas before, the, the viewers were people who would not participate. Sure. You know, now, what we as designers have to consider for these e-experiences is how is that role of that person who didn't like that was the best that they could do at that time or that was the most engaging that was the trade-off between um well not not necessarily trade-off but that was something where they could participate in a way that didn't affect other people like you Mm -hmm. know no one would necessarily watch other people who were watching that football game like actually want to play football it was like you know they designated that (laughs) these are the players Mm -hmm. but but now with these new experiences because like so for example with instagram or some of these photo based things it's like taking that photo it's not um or the way it's set up it's not like you're going to be like oh i this wasn't bad or this was bad right like everyone can participate in a in a different way you don't have to watch but there is that watching there but i guess there's so so maybe that's what we have to look at is that these e-experiences coming out whatever whatever there will be in the future that and I guess some of them have already displaced, you know, some of these sports. We just don't consider mm-hmm. them sports. Sure. But it's like the roles are participatory. But then I guess there there is no element of like these superstars. Or, or yeah, I mean, I guess there are. Yeah. I mean, and but they were already superstars in another domain coming into it, right? Like I don't know. Mm. So I don't, I'm trying to like I know I'm being like really fast <laughs> and flexible <laughs> with the rules, but but then I guess from our discussion that esports may not even ever materialize like they will materialize in a niche way but not it won't be something that that will become bigger than football because football and some of these other sports might just go away anyways uh sure possibly i don't know um just like the roman Colosseum, and like you know i think they were like feeding people the tigers or something and that was the entertainment yeah and yeah uh i'd say um I don't know. It's it's interesting that we move from coliseum to football um, because uh, I think both are sort of responses to what technology is available at the time. Yeah. Um, in uh, you know ancient Rome, it would have been incredibly difficult to manufacture an effective football helmet in the same way that we do today. Yeah. Um, or uh, shoulder pads, or even footballs themselves very odd shape um although they certainly would have been able to do it i'm sure um it's much easier today to mass produce and and mass market these these uh kind of strange objects um and so in some sense we could say that that football is a technologically driven sport um and maybe if we're thinking about the future of sports in general we can say that esports do have a place as uh being the technologically driven sports of the future. You know, maybe it won't yeah. look less like, or maybe it'll, it'll look less like uh, League of Legends and probably a little bit more like football. Um, but that just evolves to incorporate new technologies somehow. But I, you know, I wouldn't necessarily say that esports aren't going to be a thing. I mean, uh, you know, League of Legends and, and Dota are huge right now. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I'm trying to think if yeah, no, you're right, you're right. And okay. And and so so the so the other question though is, you know, the the audience for League of Legends and and Dota, mm-hmm. they weren't they wouldn't necessarily associate with something someone you would consider a casual game. 
someone who would play Bejeweled, or not Bejeweled, but um, Candy Crush or something else like that. So is there going to be an esports equivalent for that casual audience? Or, or I guess there never really was for that, um, for, like back in the day either, like even 30 or 40 years ago or what? Yeah, I think, I think it would be great if there were uh, esports that were easier to track um, and, and watch and enjoy. That's part of the reason that physical sports are, are so good for that is because you, you only really need an understanding of physics to be able to follow, oh, yeah. uh, you know, who's winning or losing and, uh, like who's farther along in the field or who's closer to scoring. It's very easy to understand. But if you're watching Dota as a new player, it's, um, almost impenetrable. You, you have to, yeah. like, dedicate some time to playing the game before you can even understand, uh, what's going on in the game itself. <clears throat> So I, I, I do think that's a place for esports to expand into is uh, esports that are easier to spectate in that sense. Um, but I also think that um, casual players maybe do watch these esports in higher numbers than one might think. Okay. I know that there's there's certainly, and perhaps I'm ex- an exception to the rule here because I'm a game developer and fairly technologically liter- literate anyway, um, but you know, there's, there's esports that I, uh, can watch and enjoy without playing myself, um, without having ever touched, you know, I can, I can watch it and still appreciate it to some degree. Yeah. Um, which is sort of, uh, just a casual understanding. Um, I think a lot of what drives sports viewership, and this is maybe something that, um, Esports haven't tied into in quite the same way, at least not yet, is um, a lot of it is driven by uh, local or community pride, a kind of um, binding together of us versus them, those evil people from another town. Um, especially, uh, it's, it's very apparent here in uh, Seattle, there's a lot of local pride for the Seahawks. Um, they have what's called, and, and confession, I don't, I don't really watch football, so maybe I'm, uh, just talking out of my ass here, but they have what's called, uh, uh, the 12th man is what they call the, the fans in the audience. And the rumor has it that they're, the, the audience is so loud in this stadium that they can cause the other team to mess up and throw the game. Yeah. And, okay, so... I mean, that, that is a good point about uh, community pride, but I think now with new technology, that community pride might be shifted from geographic to maybe even just the people, you know, kind of like how mm-hmm. Facebook itself, you know, there were these geographic sure. newspapers, and it really turned out that people cared more about, you know, a newspaper that was about, you know, their friends or whatever else, and, and as a subset of that, maybe some geographic news. Um so I guess that's going to be one design principle. The other design principle, as you were saying, was spectate, you know, spectatorship, mm-hmm. making sure that that's accessible and maybe engaging or appealing to watch um, so that there could potentially be a highlight reel that people can pick up on easily. Sure. Um, and I guess for designers, then they would have to figure out how to make those visuals or whatever else accessible, but also engaging to watch. Yeah. Um, something that I discussed with some other people um, in other interviews about esports was also having a skill, like there has to be a skill set that can, that can demonstrate mastery. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And then the other principle was going to be something where people could pick up the sport or whatever it is, the experience themselves. Sure. And either practice with it or just play it um, locally or, or, you know, among their friends or something else like that in an easy and accessible way. Yeah. Um, I guess, are there any other design principles that you feel are, well, whatever that eSport is in the future, that becomes <laughs> huge. Uh-huh. I mean, yeah, do you feel that there's another thing that, well, okay, so there also has to be an emergent. It has to be across some emergent field that lends itself to, you know, the skill or whatever else. Or, sure. Um, but yeah, anything else? Um, I feel that's a, that's a pretty good list already. Um, I think the, the accessibility that you mentioned is, is super, super important. Um, right? The barrier between me playing basketball is me going out and buying a basketball. Uh, whereas the barrier between me playing uh, a like Street Fighter is going out and buying a PC and buying an arcade stick and buying the game Street Fighter. Uh, it, it's a hard barrier to entry. Yeah. And okay. And I think then esports, at least from what we've discussed, will potentially be a subset of these bigger e-media experiences that Mm -hmm. indie developers or or whoever else will will potentially access. And so, and those e-experiences may not even have any reference point grounded in the past, potentially. I mean, or maybe they will, you know, but but it won't be, the the metaphor that works may not be a direct one-to-one sport comparison. Um, Okay. Um, yeah. So, with that said, going when when you were designing your game, sure, um, were you thinking? Would, did you even consider? Were you thinking like, oh, I'm going to make an esport or, or what? How, how did that come about? Um, I wouldn't say that I set out to make an esport necessarily. Um, and uh, if we can get like the reasons for that, if we can get sidetracked with definitions for just a just a tiny yeah, little sure. bit, um, I'd say there's a difference between. Um, an esport and a competitive game, uh, right? Like um, an esport being something like a competitive Dota or a, a competitive game being something like Street Fighter, in that um, an esport is a continuous possibility space. There's a lot of fluidity of actions and, and very small things that can occur. Um, whereas in a, a competitive game, uh, it's a discretized, uh, a quantized possibility space. I can do uh, one from X number of things, um, and uh, there's that's you know a bit of a hand wavy definition because X could be a potentially enormous number or potentially very small. But I think generally this distinction between um, Thinking about the game in terms of quantization versus uh, continuous space is is an important one to make. Um, and the game that I was, or the games that I was setting out to emulate with Botolo were more um, competitive games because I think they're rather than esports, they're easier to learn to some degree. If I'm uh, learning an esport, I essentially have to learn a new physics out of nothing, right? Uh, like I, I have an intuitive understanding of how physics work in the real world, um, but to play this esports in this simulated world, I have to first 
understand how these simulated physics work so that I can uh, manipulate them uh, with dexterity and skill. Um, but if we, if we narrow down that possibility space and uh, discretize it into, into discernible chunks, it becomes much easier to process and much easier to understand for a new player. Um, and I really wanted a game that was easy to, to get into, to process and understand. I wanted a player to uh, get into their first game and play their first game and then have a complete understanding of how the game is played. I wanted them to be making informed decisions right after that first game about like what the other player is going to do, how they're going to respond to the other player, how the other player is going to respond to their responses, you know, uh, getting in the head of your opponent and making um, interesting predictions. And that's sort of the angle that I came at Botolo from. And when you, <clears throat> so what were the first stages of developing the game? Um, very first stage was, uh, I guess, just imagining the game design in my head and trying to think out all of the possible things that could be done within this space uh, before I went out and prototyped it. And I say thinking out all the possible things uh, to indicate uh, that um, I was trying to ensure that there wasn't any like guaranteed strategy to win, right? That the game design itself wasn't fundamentally broken. Um, so mapping out mentally what the game was and figuring out what that was was important to me at first, which has actually uh, kind of changed a lot over the course of development. Um, and then once I had that out, the next step was implementing it, which was just um, straight up most boring prototype you could possibly imagine. I just wanted to get the, the feeling of movement right and have some graphics that were happening. So it was uh, you know, flat colors and circles, red, blue, white, and black. Did you notice any issues or disconnects between what you had in your mind and, and the prototype? Um, uh, yes, 100%, but I think I didn't want to admit them to myself back then. Um, there's always some amount of pride when you, when you implement a prototype, you know? Yeah. Like, uh, and, and I'm as guilty of that as anybody else. Um, the first version of the game was sort of, um, an inverse version of what it is now, uh, if that makes any sense. Uh, the way that I was thinking about it was kind of like upside down and backwards and went through a bunch of like mechanical hoops that people had trouble following me through when they tried to learn this game. Um, it was very unintuitive. And eventually I just sort of took that structure and flipped it. And then the game started making sense to people. Okay, so can you maybe give like a specific example of maybe how it was in the prototype and what you had to change and like in how it is now? Yeah, totally. Um, so how it is now, what it boils down to, if I want to make it sound like as simple and uh, as, it, as it possibly can, is it's basically a game about pressing the button at the same time that the other person presses the button, or if you're the other person pressing it at a different time. Um, and how that's accomplished is there's a ball that both players are trying to catch, um, and once they have it, they want to keep it away from the other player. If the other player tries to steal it, they have a chance to block it. If they correctly block, uh, then they get to keep the ball and then they get a bunch of points. Um, but you can't just like react to the steal. You have to predict when it's going to happen. 
So it's a game about like feeling out this other person's like small human timings and trying to uh, base uh, a prediction of how they're going to move in the future based on how they've moved in the past and sort of conditioning them into moving uh, how you want them to by changing your own movement. Um, so that like stealing and blocking, uh, those are pretty familiar basic words. The very, very first prototype in order to do that uh, when you picked up the ball you could hold down the A button and the A button would start to build this charge around the ball that would grow and grow and grow and the other, then the person without the ball could come up next to you and they had a chance to hold the A button down to try and steal but if they released it before they finished the stealing they would cancel the steal which confused a lot of people um, and in order to prevent them from stealing, you had to release the button that was charging things. So it was sort of like um, holding out a red cape for a bull to hit if you're a matador and then pulling it away at the last moment. Okay. Um, but this sort of like releasing a button to do something didn't make sense to a lot of people. It was, was really, really unintuitive. There's, there's a lot of uh, complexity there that can be reduced. And as you are iterating from the initial prototype to the final product, how do you get a sense of whether you've made a step forward or, or you know, step backward? Or um, With Botolo, it was a lot of uh, showing the game to new people and testing it with them and gauging how fast it took them to get to the core concept of the game. Um, early on, when I showed this game to people, uh, they were generally polite, but not super into it. Um, whereas, you know, I could see the core concept in my head. And once I got people past that initial learning hump, I could tell that they started to enjoy the game. Um, but that, that initial burden was, was so strange and confusing that people generally, like, didn't get past that. And it didn't seem like a rewarding enough experience to them at that point for them to be willing to put in that effort. Um, so later on, once things were simplified, people would uh, play a game, and after that game would uh, play another one, and after that game would play another one, and that's, that's when people continue to play your game. That's generally a, a good sign that you've made a, a good game. And, and how long <clears throat> in the prototype process did, that, did it take to get to that point? Um, I want to say it was like... Uh, It's been in, in fits and starts, I guess. So I guess anywhere from six months to a year. And would you say it was a series of <clears throat> micro changes that got to that point? Or was it, I mean, was there some significant maybe design choice that you made that finally made it click for everyone? Or? Um, I think it was a lot of small changes here and there. Okay. Um, there was, I mean, there was one day, and this is the only time that this has ever happened in my game development career. There was one morning when I woke up with a realization about something that I had to change, and I changed it, and it worked exactly like I thought it would, and it made the game a thousand times better. Um, but it, it's all just, you know, ultimately a small part of the larger system. So I think it was, it was a, a gradual change, a, an evolution from something that wasn't really working into something that is. So given that experience, do you feel that 
it is it is useful to still deeply spec out the initial idea in your head or or should it be a mix of proto you know like like a formulaic approach of like maybe one part thinking one part prototype or you know two parts thinking one part prototype and, and then you ask you move on in that in that formulaic way um it's hard to say you know i feel like um for some people it'll work better one way and for others it'll work better another way i i certainly I guess I would say that there are people out there who can envision an entire game in their head and bring that to fruition without ever testing it, but those people are very, very, very rare. And um, it's almost always helpful to uh, present your ideas to another person so that you can understand where where your ideas are failing and what's not being communicated. Okay. And... So you got to the point where people wanted to keep playing the game. Um, I guess after after that point, what I guess what steps did you take to either polish it up, or or did you have to make any other changes, or or spend more time to you know to to put it into the final state for release? Yeah. Um, so I guess I I didn't really realize initially when it was at that state because uh, the process of improvement had taken so long that, to me, it just seemed that this is where the game had always been. I, uh, it's sort of, you know, like the metaphor of a frog being boiled. I, I didn't really feel the change from when it wasn't working to when it was. I just realized one day that, oh, this is, this is working now, suddenly, uh, where previously it wasn't. Um, I'm sorry, I lost track of the question. Oh yeah. So um, after once you got to that state where you realized that okay, this game is is ready to go. Um, I guess what else did you have to do to to finally package it up and and release it? Oh yeah. Um, well, it's uh, funny you ask because it's still not released. Okay. Um, well, I, like like an indie submission or, or oh yeah yeah, yeah, how did yeah they, sure. okay. Um, well, I've I've been submitting it to things throughout the course of its lifetime. Um, Indiecade was probably the most recent. Um, it also featured at Fantastic Arcade about a year before. Um, so, when you preview I mean, these games at these events, do you get construct like any specific or constructive feedback? Because maybe there are more game designers there. Or um, yeah, one hundred percent. Yes, and actually, the thing that's helped Botolo more than game designer feedback has been feedback from people who play games competitively because they tend to engage with these experiences on a very deep level very quickly just because they play a lot of games and i think that more than anything has helped to shape the game design so is it competitive players or just in, in general hard like just very um, well fanatical game players in general um, I think it's it's competitive players specifically because uh, the mindset that one needs um, to play games competitively is very different from the mindset one needs to uh, like uh, spend 200 hours on Skyrim, say. Um, I need to be able to quickly appraise my opponents. It's 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 very much like. Um, 
the difference between like playing poker or playing solitaire. And you can be you can play a lot of solitaire and you can play really complex forms of solitaire and be very good at solitaire. But if you play poker, uh you won't be as good as someone who's played a lot, a lot of poker. And um yeah, I guess were there any other surprises as you're developing this and, and what's next in store then for the game? Uh, next in store, I think, is probably release, hopefully in a couple weeks, hopefully before the end of the year. That's the goal I've set my, for myself. We'll see if I make it. Um, as far as surprises in store, um, I guess it, it didn't really have any major revelations along the course of development. It's always, it's always been small changes here or there in a way that is difficult for one to notice as a game designer. And, you know, when you, well, you know, the other thing is, will this have internet multiplayer or will it be local multiplayer? Or? Uh, it is going to be local multiplayer only because I am a single person and internet multiplayer is a complex task. Yeah. I, and the, one of the reasons I ask is because one of the other um, esports designers I was talking to mentioned that um, like they felt that they had to add internet just to get enough critical mass potentially for, for people to play it continuously. Yeah, I mean I I kind of have that feeling as well, but here's here's where I come down on it is um, the indie games that I think fill a similar sort of niche to the niche that I see Botolo filling that have online multiplayer um, it often like gets used for about a week and then abandoned forever after that. And uh, even if it's like a, a bullet point that brings more people to purchasing my game, I guess I don't want to sacrifice my own attention to yeah. uh, focus on making this uh, subpar internet experience that hardly gets used when I could be spending that attention on making uh, the core local multiplayer experience itself better and better. And with that said, when you plan to release it, do you plan to kind of treat it like a sport in the sense that you're going to hold tournaments and stuff like that? Or uh, I would love to hold tournaments. I would, I mean, I'll, I'll hold them whenever I can. But I think uh, a lot of the beauty of uh, these kind of competitive games is that it's often in the hands of the the game community itself to hold tournaments for it. Um, which and oh, okay, go ahead. Oh, go on. Go on. Oh, what I was going to say is that maybe that's another design aspect we have to consider for esports. Is that mm. you know there is that there's the core game itself, and then there's this ecosystem that has to be built around the game. You know. Yeah. And, and what's interesting is that with traditional games, um, maybe you could even you know you could you would sell the game itself. But when you think about sports, it's really. <laughs> The, you know, the, the business model is completely different for football mm -hmm. and basketball and all these other things where, you know, the game itself is almost literally free yeah. compared to the actual, like, you know, it's, you're really paying, like, it costs more to buy a ticket at one of these events than it does sure. to maybe buy the football or whatever. So, um, so that, yeah, so that's, I mean, I guess that's what I wanted to explore too is maybe... Maybe if you've considered that, or and if any any future indie de designers may have, you know, if they're going to do a kind of competitive or 
or one of these types of experiences, they may have this. This is a new design skill set that people may not have considered in the past, but it's necessary now. Or sure, yeah. yeah, yeah. I think it's very difficult to if you want to make a competitive esport that's played on a level similar to football. As an indie dev- designer, that's very difficult because it takes uh, a lot of capital to get there. Um, and it, it takes a lot of just uh, impetus and force from you as a designer. If you're doing it as one person, that seems a gargantuan task. That seems nigh impossible. Um, and this is where I disagree. <laughs> okay. And, and the reason why is because I think about... Um, I think I think about Minecraft, mm-hmm. and you know that was also a you know one per. I mean, at first one person, and sure. and I think what happened was is that he was able to tap into these new distribution systems that we didn't know were that powerful at the time. Maybe mm-hmm. you know this was before PewDiePie, whatever, and so people were covering this game kind of through YouTube, and in a way that was the spectatorship, and you know, and and so as as an indie designer, maybe that's what you have to consider is how you can leverage some of these new, you know, there seems to be changes happening all the time so that, you know, it's spectatorship or events where, you know, you would go to an arena or something else. It's completely different than, um, yes, that's very expensive. And, you know, it's a completely different model versus what was happening with Minecraft. Mm-hmm. And then, and then that kind of lent, lent itself to other things and whatever else. So maybe. Yeah. I mean, I, I guess I would say that, um, yeah, I, I agree with that 100%. And then they held a, then he held a conference, like MineCon sure. or whatever it is. And yeah. so, well, I, once, once the game had already made a bunch of money, yeah, yeah. Um, because he could afford it at that point. Um, but let's but, say but you also, aren't independently also, wealthy. No, it's, but, but to be fair, what I'm also saying is that there are games that make a ton of money, and the concept of holding a conference for it mm-hmm. may not have have crossed their mind. Yeah, you're right. But you know, right. there are a lot where, where that does happen. And I guess, yeah. Um, yeah, okay. yeah, I guess I would say that, uh, Minecraft, uh, became popular, not because its creator was pushing it, but because, uh, a community sort of built itself up around it. Um, yeah. And, and that's maybe he stumbled onto that kind of design emergence that happened or whatever, but sure. it's, so, so that's a way to, to make that happen without the capital that you were mentioning or whatever else. Right, but it's um, it's uh, not easy to do so intentionally. Yeah, and no, it true. seems to happen almost entirely by accident. Yeah. And, and I think for a lot of things, though, that potentially take off, like that's... Oh, sure. That's yeah. part of it, right? Like, yeah, because yeah. it seems like you have to almost discover a new design space that has properties that, you know, that are very valuable that were unforeseen. Well, yeah. I mean, maybe not even discover a new design space. I mean, Minecraft started out as a in, Infiniminer oh, clone. Yeah. No, that's true. Uh, but, but relatively uh, yeah. around the same time, right? It was. Yes. Like, yeah, yeah. Like, in the same, like, why this is. Why is Minecraft super popular and Infiniminer is not? I don't know. <laughs> well, part of it is that the Infiniminer guy quit after a month or two, right? Mm. Because there was like, well, I don't know if you read about that, but there was like some drama or people were hacking the clients or... Oh, whoa. Yeah, no, um, I didn't read about that. Yeah, so maybe he didn't want to deal with that. Um, <laughs> but, but also, I mean, there were block games before. 
and I mm-hmm. guess be, there weren't they weren't multiplayer, and and maybe just even adding that helped. You know, like yeah. like there's sometimes there's one design principle that you add that tips it towards becoming something mm. more or whatever else. But sure, um, I mean, and that's what these games are are just a bunch of these complex systems put together, and it just seems like with esports and some of these other things, there might be new systems in place that designers have to consider. Um, for for it for it to become something more of a community, or or a bigger community or phenomenon or something else like that. But sure, yeah. Um, but yeah, um, going back to the tournament thing. So, so in your in your point of view, you feel like it's something for the players to self organize or. Uh yeah, I think so. Um, just because uh, you know, logistically, it's not something that I'm able to do. It's something that I would love to do, but um, it's beyond my power to do so. Well, do you feel that after the game release, you're going to work on it more or maintain it or, or move on to the next game? Or what are your thoughts? Um, I plan to work on it only as much as it takes to finish outstanding bugs and uh, make any balance tweaks that need to be made. Um if if it does about as well as I'm expecting it to do, uh, which is is super niche to be honest, like I'm, I'm not expecting it to be a runaway hit or anything, um, but if it does, you know, like become super popular, then I could see myself uh, working on it more, or at least hiring someone to work on it. But that's it's not going to happen. <laughs> okay. And and so, do you have any thoughts on the next game you're potentially going to work on, or? Um, yeah, I've got a, I've got a project that I've been working on with a designer named Kyle Reimergarten. Um, he made a game previously, which I, I like a lot. It's called Fjords. I think it's got like a bunch of S's on the end of it. Um, but we've been working together on this game or were for a while and we took a break so I could finish Botolo because I was sort of working on the two games at the same time. But once Botolo's finished, I'll probably return to this one. Um, about a hiker who gets lost in the Pacific Northwest and uh, stumbles into this cave somehow that has been uh, separated from the rest of planet Earth for thousands and thousands and thousands of years. Um, And so the ecosystem inside this cave is bizarre and alien and looks unlike anything else that you see. And the end of the hiker kind of like gets the ecosystem of the cave is sort of this living organism that sort of fungally infects this person and so they sort of see with the senses of the cave if that makes sense uh but yeah it's a kind of explore procedurally generated uh visually interesting kind of thing okay um you know what are your thoughts that because it seems like your esport game was done alone versus this game, which is mm-hmm. done with two people. Right. What What are your thoughts of working alone versus working with someone else on the design? I generally prefer to work alone, just because I can um, uh, I can see what the thing is that I want to make is, and then I can do all parts of that myself. And I don't like. Uh, putting the impetus on someone else to make one of those parts for it because 
A, I feel like I have very particular standards for what I want that to be, and I don't feel comfortable asking someone else to meet those because I think that's it would be a ridiculous request coming from me. Um, and also, I you know uh, can trust myself to a certain degree, and if if I fail to meet my own standards, then those failings are my own, and I don't have to like feel bad about somebody else because they, you know, failed to meet some standard that was probably not a reasonable standard anyway. Um, but working with Kyle has been really good. Uh, I think we've got a good working relationship and there's not like a lot of that kind of internal strife that I have with my own work towards, you know, it has to be exactly this way. Uh, working with Kyle has been much more uh, improvisational and fluid than it is typically when I'm working alone. Do you feel that you could get the same feedback from just bringing in random testers, you know, who, who continuously test in and maybe give you different perspectives? Or uh, definitely not. I feel that um, having another game designer on the project is almost as big a change as going from zero game designers to one game designer. Um, you know, it's it's another voice, and suddenly this is being shared fifty fifty by two people, two authors at once, rather than uh, one singular voice. Um, it's just not the same if you replace that person with a big uh, homogenous blob of anonymous testers. Yeah, or, or even a tester that you meet continuously for a month or two. Sure. I mean, because, because what I've seen, um, at least in certain design game designs, that sometimes other game designers get in the way of mm. the design, at least in certain spaces, and maybe... Mm -hmm. um, for certain types of games or for certain types of audiences. Now, yeah. um, you know, how do you balance then the need of getting, you know, good input and good feedback with the fact that sometimes other designers may get in the way? Yeah, no, I, I think it's great if other designers are getting in the way. Well, to a certain degree, right? There's a productive kind of getting in the way and there's a destructive getting in the way. Yeah. Um, but you need someone to get in your way sometimes because not all of your ideas are going to be good. Just like not all of their ideas are going to be good. Well, the tester can get in your way, right? Versus sure. another yeah, game yeah, designer. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, so what's the difference then between a yeah. tester and a game designer? Um, I, guess, I guess the main difference is that with someone... And there's different like tester-developer relationships, to be fair. I would almost consider like dedicated testers that I go to and show the game to repeatedly on a regular basis are almost kind of consultant game designers in and of themselves. Yeah. They just don't have that like power to say uh, it has to be done this way or I'm leaving the project forever. Okay. Um, okay. And, and so what are your thoughts um, moving forward in terms of your own game design? skills and capabilities what i guess what steps and and what things do you do that maybe um, help you become a better game designer over time uh i think the only thing to do to get better at making games is to make games and make lots of games which is something that i have not been so good at doing myself in recent years but i i, I generally think that like i don't know that's that's the only way to get good at making games is to keep making them. So would you say that it's better to do 300... When you say make games, do you mean like release right. games or just prototypes? Um, 
I guess it it depends. I mean, you know, if you if you make a lot of prototypes, you'll get really good at making prototypes. If you release a lot of games, you'll get better at releasing games. Um, I think it depends on what skill set you want to focus on. Okay. Um, and for the development tool that you use, do you usually start from scratch, or do you try to use some of those third-party tools like Unity? Or um, I code my games in ActionScript 3, um, aka Adobe Flash. Um, but aside from that, like I do all of it myself. Okay. Um, and I guess what about studying or keeping up with trends in the industry? Is that something where you as a game designer don't consider them? Or is it something where you would prototype the ideas just to get a sense of where they're coming from? Or um, I think it's important to at least be aware of them and to at least um, study them from a diff distance um, if you're not you know, prototyping the game yourself. Um, I, I don't think it's, it's wise to isolate yourself and, and live in a bubble ignoring all trends. Um, I think that'll almost inevitably lead to uh, poorer game design. And where do you feel that um, games are, you know, where do you, what do you feel is, are, are the prospects for indie game developers in the next maybe two to four years? Uh, by prospects, what do you mean? Um, do you feel that the indie game developers, you know, there's like that, that concept of the indie apocalypse or whatever it is, mm -hmm. and it's like, you know, like, you know, the, the opportunity for indies is over and, sure. you know, and, like stuff like that, or do you feel it's just it's just people who try to get in for a little bit and then um, just complaining or what? I think we've seen far greater financial success out of indies in recent years than we have before. Um, I don't know if it's necessarily. I don't know if I would say that it's becoming more viable to be indie, um, but I do think what we see is a move from. Um, sort of triple A culture uh, to uh, kind of capture indie aesthetics and um, capitalize on them in a way that they have with their own games. Um, I mean, you know, all triple A studios were indie studios at one point or another. Yeah. Um, and I think what we've seen in our recent years isn't so much an indie apocalypse uh, as it is just um, a set of independent developers getting bigger slices of the pie and uh, what would look like a, a normal su success in previous years looks much smaller now by comparison, looks much more meager. Um, in addition to there just being more people making games now. Yeah, but... So, but but still, as long as you do, you feel that if you make a unique game nowadays, you still have a really good chance of succeeding. Or uh, no, I don't okay. think so. Um, <laughs> no, that's I, fine. I I think actually, I was just thinking about other games that were succeeding, and some of them are just kind of even variations of things that become popular culture. Yeah, whether it's Terraria and kind of like building off the Minecraft thing, and um, sure, and. But yeah, go finish what you're gonna say. Yes. 
Oh yeah, I, I mean, I I don't think that's like special about this present time. Um, I think uh, having a good idea has like never guaranteed you success in okay. what you're doing. Um, what are oh yeah, and and you mentioned I think being in the Seattle area. Mm-hmm. Um, what are your thoughts of the game design scene there? Because I know I think there was like PopCap or, or there are these yeah. like studios that are. Yeah, there's there's a lot of lot of big studios in this area. Um, I mostly keep to myself, to be honest, outside of a few like um, local indie friends that I hang out with from time to time. I'm kind of a bit of a hermit up here, um, so I can't like really speak to say the the corporate or even the indie culture of Seattle too well. And um, for your for the game that you're working on with the other designer, when uh-huh. do you expect that to be released? Whew. Uh, that, yeah. That's a really good question that I don't have a good answer for. Uh, I would say hopefully within like a year or two, but uh, who knows? Okay. And as we wrap up, are there any, I guess, suggestions you have uh, for other aspiring indie game developers or, you know, um, students who are, looking to potentially become an indie game developer uh yeah i would say that if if games are the thing that you want to do and you know that games are the thing you want to do and nothing can dissuade you from this um pursue interests outside of games because that will make your game design that much richer okay and and for you like so do you just pursue random hobbies or how does that work for you um so for example, from my own life, I was um, in high school. I was pretty pretty sure that I wanted to make games for a living, um, and so I I looked at all of the things that were involved in game making and tried to figure out what I could do, what I couldn't do, what I could teach myself to do, um, and the one to me that seemed most foreign was um, art. So I decided to apply to an art college and get the best education from outside sources that I possibly could. Um, But that, you know, just like look at things, look at media that aren't games, look at uh, get your ideas from books, from poetry, from sculpture, from film, from so many things in the world that aren't games. Uh, Because it's, it's not as though we have to invent culture out of nothing right like these sources exist for us to to enjoy and to learn from and to make ourselves richer from so you know why not enjoy these okay so games are more the medium um and you're going to use that medium to potentially infuse some of these other things that are outside in culture um yeah yeah i mean i I think it's a great idea to like i don't know one of my favorite uh, mental exercises is to go into an art museum and look at a random painting and think, uh, try to figure out how exactly I would take that painting style and make it work as a video game with everything in motion and moving and interacting with each other. And, you know, you mentioned art and, mm-hmm. and how you felt that that was something you were potentially deficient in, and so you went and studied that. Mm-hmm. And, and yet, the current game, or the game that you're working on with the other game designer is going to be procedurally generated, if I, if I understood correctly, right? Yeah, yeah. So how do you balance 
saying that, oh, I need this skill versus, you know what, how can I create a new paradigm or invent a new paradigm that avoids the skill entirely? Um, That's saving you time or, or even, even like right. another person. Okay. Helps so I would say that procedural generation is very much an art practice. Um, uh, by way of example, um, Spelunky is procedurally generated, but is procedurally generated in a way where it's made out of hand-created levels. Um, but even something like Minecraft or No Man's Sky, where it's all algorithms, yeah. uh, the human still has a, a part in shaping that algorithm and tweaking certain corner cases and expressing what that algorithm looks like as people are seeing it. Um, I think that... Uh, Procedure is is a uh, a method of art making uh, very similar to uh, so if you look at like uh, painting as compared to print media right yeah. a painting is a one of a kind object there can only be one painting as traditionally understood uh, whereas when we go to look at like printmaking uh, it's all about the multiple right we make a series of fifty uh, etchings and now there's instead of a single um, painting in the world, we have 50 of them. And does this make them less valuable? Uh, I don't know. That's up for debate. But, uh, so I would say that, uh, procedure is to printmaking as printmaking is to painting. Um, procedure for me is just a mode of art making, okay. uh, that has to do with instructing algorithms to create the kind of, like, shapes that you want. Um, and so I, I absolutely think of procedural generation as being, tied to the artist's hand and I, I don't think it's a retreat from it at all it's it's a different art form though right and, and mm -hmm. it's it's an art form that may not have even been captured in, in art colleges in, in um, the way that it's being used right now right or, or or do you consider that because you know if you study the artists you're right they they there is something in there you know like like you know <laughs> like like you have to under there are nuances like there's even right. Like even even how some of the artists blend, you know, blended their colors or created mm -hmm. certain. Um, so there's definitely that process, and and so, so if I understand correctly, you you feel that procedural generation also is its own art form, though. But can you can get inspiration and wisdom from it from studying the other arts, or? Uh, yeah, sure, okay. absolutely. Um, and I'd I'd say that uh, procedural generation has always existed in art to some degree. Um, if we think about, and this is, this is sort of, you know, a really broad view of this, but if we think about like Rembrandt as a procedural generation algorithm, uh, we can identify a Rembrandt painting as a series of, uh, versus, uh, you know, a Picasso, a Rembrandt has features X, Y, and Z versus a Picasso, which has features A, B, and C yeah. typically with, with rules being broken all the time, of course. Um, and, uh, so we can, we can think of like, like, uh, Rembrandt almost as this procedural algorithm that produces Rembrandt paintings. Yeah. Um, and, and so I would say that procedure, right? Rembrandt had a procedure with which he created his paintings, yeah. um, which okay. lent them a Rembrandt-esque look has always been present in painting and in art. Um, even, even back as far as like, uh, Lasco cave paintings, right? That, that art in those caves is all about procedure, uh, where they, they took their hands and like chewed up 
ash or whatever it was or some kind of ink in their mouths and spit it over their hands to make handprints over the cave. Yeah. That's all about like this procedurally generated handprint. And and so for you, your perspective for procedural generation in games is that each of these procedurally generated games will kind of have its own style at the hand of the game designer, which is the new kind of artist in, in a way. Yeah, right? yeah, definitely. Who, who's who's creating the rule set and the style for those procedural generations. Yes, yeah. Okay, and so procedural generation to you is it's it's printmaking versus uh-huh. the... Okay, and, yeah. and so with that said, are you... So how are you exploring the procedural style that you're going to have for this game? Um... So I, I feel that the role of the artist in procedural generation tends to be one of um, creating for oneself fruitful mindsets to think about rule making. Um, and once I can understand how to make those rules, I can see what sort of shapes and forms those rules create. And once I can see what shapes and forms those rules create, I can go back to the rules and say, well, these were productive and these were not productive. So I'm going to uh, iterate more on these over here and sort of leave these others by the wayside. Um, it's almost more a curatorial approach where you're looking at a large subset of noise and trying to narrow down uh, where you see the shapes and the forms in those noise rather than a creative approach where you're trying to generate shapes and forms out of nothing. And, but the procedural generation, it isn't going, only just going to be across the visual elements, though. Right? Uh, like, I mean, like yeah, I, mean, yeah. I mean, in a way, like the procedural generation, you know, like the terrain and everything else, that's... Mm-hmm. Yes, but yeah, I guess, procedural. So I guess, where do you see procedural generation going in the future? Because it seems like this is going to now become one of these fundamental game design aspects at least maybe it's just the trends that i'm seeing right now right um it's hard to say it's um it's really difficult to work procedurally um and it's sort of uh kind of scary i think if you're afraid of uh surrendering your hand right there might be something that occurs in your game that you didn't anticipate and depending on how comfortable one is with the idea of you know, something that's that's alien to oneself appearing in the game, I think that has a lot to do with um, how much control one is willing to cede to procedural generation. Um, and so I think uh, studios that tend to want to make a lot of money off of games, that have a lot of financial risk in creating their games, tend to be fairly conservative with procedural generation. Uh, this is kind of why everything in No Man's Sky looks just about the same. Um, whereas uh, smaller studios that don't have to make a financially successful game can do kind of wilder and stranger things. Uh, the first Spelunky was a great example of that. You know, you had a lot of really strange and wild interactions in that game, I think in large part because uh, the original wasn't uh, supposed to make a bunch of money. It was just this free game that you could download on the internet. Or... Better example, yeah, Dwarf Fortress, which yeah. is full of bizarre, bizarre things that are happening. Only possible because Tarn Adams is making it the way Tarn Adams is making it. Okay. Um, and because, because I think it also points out to another trend of 
basically all the content makers within a game team are getting removed and replaced by the code. Mm. I mean, except for the for the rule maker, and that may even, and that's what I was maybe even procedural generation will come to a point where it just generates the rule sets that are then you know explored upon by people, and, and maybe that's but. But I, I see, because I see, I totally remember, like, you know, you're talking about AAA teams, and it's like, you know, AAA, like, there were all these artists mm-hmm. working on making sure it's this, 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 and this. And it seems like, at least for the audience, for for certain games now, and, and you mentioned No Man's Sky, but that may not be critical. Like, mm-hmm. it's, it's, the, it's the novelty or, or being able to explore new stuff, like, as long as the procedural generation was done properly in a way that's interesting then that people keep doing it but but what are your thoughts on procedural generation is it going to be something that is going to be a cornerstone of future game design or or is it uh, just it's a trend or what i mean i think you hit upon the exact perfect words there uh which is done properly um in that uh good procedural generation isn't this uh sort of retreat away from authored content. Uh, good procedural generation is is very much authored. And in that sense, I, I don't see it as replacing um, game designers. I think uh, game designers and, and human interaction create, creation is is vital to ensuring that your procedural generation is is good instead of kind of just this random pulpy mush. Um, you look at something like uh, Google's Deep Dream, right? It creates very uh, vivid images um, and really like strange monsters, squirrels with seven eyeballs and rainbow for fur um, that look more like slugs than squirrels. But uh, once you view enough of Google's Deep Dream images, you've sort of understood the pattern. And it doesn't have much novelty to offer you beyond that. And I think that's that's the point at which we need humans in this process, is to inject novelty into these uh, processes of procedural generation. Okay. Um, thanks again. I think, I think that was an added bonus of just uh, getting your perspective on <laughs> procedural generation <laughs> and how it's a different... You know, I, I never viewed it as potentially a different art form. Sure. Yeah. Um, or it's, you know, an art form in it by itself. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I love any chance that I get to, like, geek out about art for briefly, you yeah. know? Um, okay, cool. So any other things you want to share with indie game developers or any other last <laughs> things? Or, or, I, I, think, yeah. I think that's it. I think that'll do it. Okay. Great. Um, thanks again for your time. And once yeah. again, where can listeners find out more information about your games or, you know, anything um, you're about to release? You can find out, well, you can follow me on Twitter at what is Ian. Um, you can go to my website, which is ianiselsewhere.com. Uh, if you'd like to know more about Botolo, you can go to botologame.com. That's B-O-T-O-L-O game.com. Or you can follow at botologame on Twitter. Um, I think that that pretty much does it. Okay, great. Um, thanks again for your time. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Take care. Bye. Bye.